Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. New Haven, Connecticut is the home of Yale University and, of course, Yale University Press. But at one time, it was also the home of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, the famed and sometimes controversial manufacturer of rifles. The family behind the company, the Winchesters, have a storied history as well. And today I'm joined by Laura Trevelyan, descendant of the Winchesters and author of The Winchester, The Gun That Built an American Dynasty. Laura, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for the invitation, Michael. It's lovely to be here in New Haven. So to start, how are you related to the Winchesters? So despite the accent, which does hail from London, England, (laughs) uh, Oliver Winchester, who founded the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, uh, he's my great-great-great-grandfather. It just so happens that my grandmother married an Englishman and and moved to England. And then 12 years ago, my husband and I moved uh, back here from from England. But the lineage, nonetheless, starts (laughs) off with Oliver Winchester. So he was my great-great-great-grandfather. And when I visited New Haven as a teenager... Um, we got to visit the Winchester Summer Family Home, which is in Bramford, New Haven, just about 15 minutes Mm -hmm. north of where we're sitting now. And this was a compound that was built by Oliver Winchester's son-in-law, Thomas Gray Bennett, uh, because he had made many millions of dollars from the Winchester repeating (laughs) rifle. And so through going to this beautiful place on the Connecticut shore, I became interested in how it was that this had all come to be. So I guess that's the origin of the book. And is the house still privately owned or is it? what? Well, the actual house itself, the the grand summer residence that Thomas Gray Bennett built was pulled down in 1965 by uh, my grandmother and her sisters because it was one of these deeply impractical gilded age properties (laughs) that no no one with uh, anything other than a millionaire's income, multi-millionaire's income could possibly think that they could... um, uh, really maintained. So my dad, for example, remembers coming with his mother from England to visit his aunts. And the house, summer house, had a whole wing that was only opened when the Trevelyans came to stay. So it was <laughs> deeply impractical. And once the once the great grandparents died, the, the house came down. Uh, so, but we do it did. The land there is still owned by the family, and there are lots of smaller houses to this day. And in fact, the what was the caretaker's cottage for the old estate, um, that belongs to my husband and I. So we summer here with our children, okay. uh, which we feel very fortunate to be able to do. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, so speaking of Oliver Winchester, what were the early days like for the Winchester Repeating Arms Company? And uh, how did Oliver come to found the company and why was he able to make it such a success? Well, Oliver is one of those classic rags to riches tales. He was born a penniless farm boy. Uh, his father died very soon after he was born. Um, he was from a large extended family because his father had been married several times. Oliver didn't go to school or he only went to school when there was no farm work to be done. He's entirely self-taught. And when you read his letters, he's a fantastic writer. So just think of the of the achievement and the drive and the ambition he must have had. And back in those days, um, I guess the early years of America, church building was very popular and Oliver was apprenticed to work for a church builder and he became expert at building flying buttresses of all things. <laughs> uh, he was apprenticed around the age of 14 but then he quit that and became involved in designing shirts and he actually patented a shirt collar which you gentlemen wear to this day and became very wealthy and set up a, 
um, manufactured shirts here in New Haven. And he'd made so much money from shirts that he was looking for somewhere to put his cash. And the Civil War was on the horizon. And he invested in a company, Volcanic, which eventually became the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, although he himself knew very little about guns. But he, I guess, was a businessman and could see an opportunity with war on the horizon. It sounds very much like a modern day entrepreneur. You sort of start one place and then you do something else. And your skill is maybe doing these things and picking the right things rather than specifically knowing that um, industry. Yes, exactly. And I guess he was shrewd. I mean, when he moved here to New Haven from uh, actually from Baltimore is where he began his shirt making. But when he moved here to New Haven, at that point in the 19th century, New Haven was home to carriage makers, to clock makers. Uh, I guess it was close enough to New York that your name would spread if you did something that was successful. Mm -hmm. So he sold shirts and magnificent collars to all these well-to-do up-and-coming folk. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it's fascinating, isn't it, when you look at New Haven today to think of uh, all the carriage manufacturers and the clock manufacturers and also um, just things like keys were made here too. Uh, And there was Oliver making his shirts and then as you were saying, just as with investors today, once you have a ton of cash, (laughs) you want to do something with it. And he saw the Civil War was looming and thought that this would be an opportunity, although it turned out less of an opportunity than he thought. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, What, you know, what was the role for Winchester in the Civil War and, and how did it sort of pan out for them? So Oliver had a rifle called the Henry repeating rifle. So the repeating rifle this was one of the first to fire continuously without being needed to be reloaded. This was the the genius of that particular weapon. Mm -hmm. And what Oliver wanted to do was to sell the Henry repeating rifle to the Union side because, as he saw it, this was going to be invaluable in battle. And he wasn't the only person trying to do this. There was a rival rifle as well, a Spencer, another repeating rifle. Uh, and they had exactly the same idea. But it's this sort of a fascinating tale, really, of um, obduracy in bureaucracy, something which I think you hear a lot about in defense contracting to this day. But um, <laughs> So the, the men in charge in the army thought that a repeating rifle was going to be the biggest waste of money ever because soldiers were just going to waste ammunition and keep on firing. So, and they didn't really trust the technology, the army top brass. They thought, oh, this is just something newfangled, nothing wrong with our musket. So uh, they proved very resistant, even though Lincoln himself, president during the Civil War, Lincoln was a gun buff. Lincoln, it said, tried out both the Henry and the Spencer, although he preferred the Spencer. Hmm. Uh, But one Colonel Ripley, who was in charge of the Ordnance Department, uh, went very slow. And so very few of these repeating rifles ever got to the front line. But what did happen in the Civil War was the individual regiments around the country. So there's a great picture in the book of the, the an Illinois regiment, all armed with their own Henry repeating rifles, which they bought themselves with their own money because it was seen as such an effective weapon um, against the other side. And Oliver himself, who was an indefatigable correspondent, wrote to newspapers around the country in the border states, in the northern states, saying, this is a fantastic rifle which will aid our boys. Have you heard about it? (laughs) The Henry, you know, no good soldier should be without one and all the rest of it. So he mounted this campaign. And by word of mouth, people did buy um, the Henry repeating rifle, but it it wasn't key Mm -hmm. in the Civil War in the way that... Oliver Winchester had hoped that it would be. 
So would Oliver Winchester have considered himself more of a salesman than a necessarily a, a gun manufacturer? Yeah, I mean, I think he was the front man for the company. Mm-hmm. So he was the relentless marketer. He was also the person who underwrote it. I mean, it, he was forever having to find new investors. And people were forever pulling out because it didn't make any money in the early years. Mm-hmm. So yes, he was both the investor in chief and the promoter in chief. He wasn't the person who was doing the work to make the repeating rifle work. That was all... Um, that was all other people. But uh, he was the one who could see the potential. I think that's that was him. You know, he's extremely shrewd. Uh, and uh, ultimately, as it turned out, a smart businessman because his investment paid off. Although in the early years, it seemed to fail 12 times before breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is, I think, a lesson for even today's entrepreneurs. You have to have that capital to keep going because it's probably going to be pretty lean at the beginning. Yes, exactly. And they, they certainly were lean years. But it was actually the end of the Civil War that offered the opportunity for Oliver to make some money at long last, as he saw it, because when the Civil War ended, of course, that was when the resumption of the westward expansion began. And that's where the Winchester repeating rifle really came into its own. And in 1866, Oliver... Um, The company finally took on his name. It became the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. And that was when the rifle really began to sell because whether you were a cowboy, whether you were a settler, whether you were a mailman or indeed a male woman, uh, and many Native Americans too, although they were slaughtered in large numbers by the Winchester repeating rifle, but it was also a rifle that Native Americans themselves sought. And so it became wildly popular in the brutal settling of the West. Mm -hmm. And that was where Oliver finally made his money. Yeah, and uh, it's, uh, you know, the the gun that won the West is one of the models, the 1873. Um, And it sort of carries this romanticized version of America. But as you mentioned, it's not without its, its kind of controversial history as well. Was it something that concerned the family at the time or was it something that they took a position on either way or were they sort of just remaining neutral as, you know, the frontier pushed forward? I think they were just selling guns. I mean, if you look at the history at that, well, previously, so Andrew Jackson, who was the president who the Native Americans called Sharp Knife, mm-hmm. uh, he promised that there would be a permanent frontier beyond which uh, it wouldn't move further westward. And there was no permanent frontier. Um, but I think if you if you look back to the period, the thinking of the period, it was underlined by this view that of American exceptionalism, of a God-given right to the white settlers to take the lands which were theirs, mm-hmm. the idea that Native Americans were an inferior tribe, that they had no right to these lands, although they were theirs, and that they were going to be taken by the those who saw themselves as superior. And, I mean, there's nothing at all to suggest that Oliver felt remotely guilty about what was happening. I think he was extremely cross when General Custer... Uh, this is it's an interesting point, actually, that Custer's last stand, which is the one big battle of the Indian Wars which went the way of the Native Americans, mm-hmm. uh, the Native Americans there actually had repeating rifles in large numbers, and they out outgunned Custer and his men. But of course, it's not really representative of the whole story of the Indian Wars as we know. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you talk about New Haven being an important uh, part of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. It was here in New Haven. Um, for those in New Haven, switching gears a little bit, 
or planning to visit, what are some of the places they can visit or uh, see remnants of the impact on the city? Well, interestingly, you can now buy an apartment in the old Winchester factory. <laughs> I guess this is really a sign of the times, isn't it? Um, that it's a, if you go to somewhere called Winchester Lofts, as they're now called, uh-huh. that is the old Winchester factory. And now these are, I guess, what you might describe as luxury apartments, <laughs> which have been fitted out in the old Winchester factory with uh, lots of actually rather nice Winchester paraphernalia and and photographs. And so that will give you a sense of what the Winchester factory was like. But it's hard to imagine now when we look around that at one time Winchester was New Haven. And I think particularly during the two world wars, First and Second World War, where production was stepped up and mm-hmm. the city was just dominated by this sense of war and wartime production and all the propaganda that goes with it, the pulling together and the through these gates lies victory and, <laughs> and all of that. But I, I think that, yeah, that was a time when really uh, this this city was absolutely dominated by Winchester. And now really the only remnant that we have are the, the Winchester lofts. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talk about uh, Thomas Bennett and say that by the time he retired for the first time, in 1910 as president of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, the Winchester name had become well-known among the kings, queens, emperors, rulers, and counselors of all countries of the globe. So how did he come to be president of the company, first of all? And uh, how did he grow the brand so well? So Thomas Gray Bennett, he was a very fortuitous addition to the Winchester family. He married Oliver Winchester's daughter, Jenny, Uh, Thomas Graham Bennett himself was a Civil War veteran. He had actually seen repeating rifles in action when he was down in Florida. Um, He went to engineering school after he graduated. He was a Yale man once the war was over, and he went to work at the Winchester Repeating... Well, not that it was the Winchester Repeating Arms Company then, but... um, At its, at its forerunner. And somewhere along the line, he met Oliver's daughter and married very well. <laughs> and he's actually a great character because unlike Oliver, who didn't keep a great deal of personal letters, every, every correspondence that we have is, is all professional with Oliver. Mm-hmm. But Thomas Gray Bennett was um, prolific, a prolific letter writer who, if he was away from his wife, every single night he would write her a letter and she would write one back to him <laughs> in which... Just with this amazing outline of his day, and he wrote wonderful love letters during their courtship, and and continued to write fantastic letters right until the end. So we we have a good sense of their life and what they were like as a couple, and how absolutely devoted they were, but also how difficult times were. But what Oliver did with Thomas Gray Bennett was to sell rifles around the world. So if you think we have the expansion westward after the Civil War, but also. Even in those days before there were aeroplanes, there were still telegrams. People <laughs> received their information that way and they could get on boats and they could sail to Europe and then sail from Europe to other points, uh, which is what Thomas Gray Bennett did. So he went to Paris, for example. He was sent by, dispatched by Oliver to Paris. And the French um, sent Winchester rifles, which they bought from New Haven, to Mexico, where they wanted to support their French-backed emperor against an uprising. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, Winchester managed to send sell arms to both sides of that conflict at different times, <laughs> <laughs> although not simultaneously. But so rifles were sold to France. Uh, uh, Thomas Gray Bennett was dispatched by Oliver to Istanbul to to meet the Turkish sultans Hmm. because the Turks were having their own conflict with the Russians. Remember, the Ottoman Empire was 
coming to an end. It mm-hmm. was in its dying days. Um, and so the Winchester rifle was sold to them. And Thomas Gray Bennett has these wonderful descriptions of being in in court with the sultans and just about the way life is and how lavish it is. And he's given jewels by the sultan to give to his wife. And uh, Anyway, so he has these wonderful letters from Paris and Istanbul. And then a lot of the time he's stuck in London just waiting for boats and uh, <laughs> And then he's hopping on steamers back to America. And there's one of my favorite bits is when he's in Paris, he goes to buy his wife Jenny a dress because she wants, of course, a dress from fashionable Paris, (laughs) something you could never get in New Haven. And so he goes off to buy her a dress on some boring day when he's waiting for contracts to be signed. And um, and then he writes to her, you know, I've I've got your dress, the one you wanted. How I wish I could see you either in or out of the dress, (laughs) which is quite racy for 1880. (laughs) (laughs) But Thomas Gray Bennett is also... Like Oliver, he's shrewd. He's a terrific businessman. He grows the brand. And it's it's Thomas Gray Bennett who hops on a train to Utah in 1880 because one of the Winchester salesmen – well, this story may be apocryphal. It's not entirely clear how the Mormon uh, mm-hmm. Browning brothers out in Utah came to the attention of Thomas Gray Bennett. But one story is that um, there was a, a rifle that they'd made that one of the Winchester scouts out out in Utah bought and it ended up on Thomas Gray Bennett's desk in New Haven. And unlike Oliver, he was a gunman. He had seen conflict in the Civil War. Uh, He himself took a great interest in the gun shop. He fired every rifle they made himself. He Mm. would make adjustments. I mean, he he was an engineer and a great uh, enthusiast for everything that Winchester did. So Oliver saw this fantastic rifle, leapt on a train to Utah, which in those days took three days from New Haven, and went and found the Browning brothers, uh, the famous Mormon gunsmiths at work in their little gun shop and on the spot said, you know, I'll buy this rifle and the next three you make for $10,000. And I think think it ended up being slightly less in the end. And that was the beginning of a 25-year relationship in which really the genius of Browning was harnessed to Winchester. And uh, Thomas Gray Browning, he steps down and then he eventually becomes president again, correct? That's right. So Thomas Gray Bennett, you know, he's in his 70s, mm-hmm. and I guess in that period, uh, this is shortly before the First World War, you know, he's had a wonderful life. He has a fantastic house in New Haven, which was uh, has its gardens designed by Gray and Olmsted, and, mm-hmm. um, sorry, Olmsted and Vaux, and, you know, he's altogether living the fabulous life of the, I guess, <laughs> I don't know if it would be a billionaire by today's money. It's a little bit hard to quantify, but he's, you know, certainly there amongst the richest people in America. He has, he builds this fantastic summer estate out in Bramford, this ginormous house overlooking the rocks. Uh, you know, he goes hunting, shooting, fishing. He has a loving family. Uh, and he, his son, Winchester, named for the gun, is the heir apparent for mm-hmm. the company. So Thomas decides, well, you know, I really think... It's time for me to step down. I'm in my 70s. I've done my bit. And he's writing one of his letters to Jenny. And he says, when you get back, you know, she's off sightseeing in Europe. Let's sink the housekeeping and the flowers, the coupons, the bank deposits and live instead of wading around in a morass of perplexities and accounts. When I stop to consider the short time that's left to me, I'm impressed with the foolishness of our little lives. How shall we mend them for things worth having? So he decides he's going to step down. And Winchester very, very reluctantly agree. And... His, his and Jenny's son, Winchester, becomes um, vice president of the company. But he's not like Thomas Gray Bennett or Oliver. He's not cut from the same cloth. 
Uh, he's had this extraordinary upbringing where he's had dancing lessons. He <laughs> speaks French. You know, mm. he's lived the life of the the elite. He hasn't fought in the civil war like his father or been a penniless farm boy like his grandfather. He's grown up with all of the benefits. And I mean, he's also highly intelligent. He's a Yaleman. He's a, he too is an engineer. He's worked in the gun shop. He knows an awful lot about guns. But he seems to suffer throughout his life from illness, from nervous anxiety, from it's never stated. I don't know if nervous anxiety is a euphemism for something. Uh-huh. It's very unclear. But his parents worry about him greatly and they're thrilled when he, he makes a good marriage. They're, they're just over the moon. Although there's some evidence from the letters that Susan Silliman, who, who marries Winchester, feels a bit pushed into it by her father, who sees it as a very advantageous <laughs> marriage. I mean, who wouldn't? It's just like Jane Austen <laughs> to marry the richest uh, man in town's son. <laughs> so he makes a good marriage, which is good. But he is at the helm of Winchester when World War One arrives. And he's just not up for making the big decisions that have to be made quickly about what to do, who to make rifles for. The orders mm-hmm. come flooding in. What do we do? Do we expand our premises? How do we pay for it? He becomes slightly paralyzed in the face of it and then becomes very, very ill again. And Thomas Gray Bennett comes back reluctantly <laughs> to the helm of the company. And how old is he at this crisis. point? Well, he's in his 70s. I mean, he dies in, he's 80 something when he dies. So I guess he's about 70. Okay. But, you know, he's reluctant to come right. back. He's definitely reluctant. But he also sees it as his duty. And he's very, very concerned about his son, who's extremely sick, and they send him off to Florida to recover. So I think there's lots of family drama at the same time. Uh, And meanwhile, Winchester is is making all these decisions, and Oliver has to hire someone else in the role of his son, which he does. But Winchester makes what turns out with hindsight, and hindsight's a wonderful thing. The company makes an error, which is that it, massively expands its premises. It spends a ton of money uh, building new buildings so that it can make all the extra rifles and the extra ammunition, all the orders that are flooding in because it's wartime. Even though, remember, America goes late into the war, Mm -hmm. Winchester has got orders from the Allies. The British want them to make this rifle. And there are all sorts of problems with the British order for the Enfield rifle because the British want it to fire a particular kind of round and for the Americans, for Winchester, to make adjustments, which... The Winchester gun shop people say this is never this rifle is never going to fire, but they're told to do it anyway, and sure enough, it doesn't work. So there are hundreds and hundreds of problems. Uh, and the Americans come into the war. They come in late. War ends earlier than anyone thought. <laughs> and at the end of the First World War, Winchester is massively in the red, and it can't pay its bills, despite, you would think, having made a fortune. I mean, isn't war supposed to be good for arms manufacturers? Right. But because they'd made such a big investment in their plant and some of their contracts had gone wrong especially the one with the British they and the other issue just was that overheads went up so they had fixed price contracts with the government which was supposed to guarantee uh, a certain profit but the cost of raw materials went up the cost of labor went up all their costs went up so they were in horrible financial shape at the end of the war and no obvious way to get out of it because demand had dropped again because the war was over people didn't want as many rifles so the company was casting around for what to do, and Thomas Gray Bennett and the rest were very impressed by a plan that was put to them. Uh, at that time, there was a um, a chain of drug druggists, drugstores called Rexall. It's a wordplay on Latin for king of all. And um, Louis Liggett, who ran them, became a member of the Winchester board and had what seemed like a wizard wheeze to everybody. He said, well, look, there's all this extra 
you know, production facility that you have, why don't you just use it not to make guns, but to make products which are as good as the gun? Winchester can go and make washing machines and it can make ice skates and it can make razor blades and cutlery. And, and then you buy these wonderful retail stores, you know, across the Northeast. You have one in Boston, you have one in New York, you have one here in New Haven and, and you sell all these products and you make tons of money and it's all going to work. So no one has a better idea. <laughs> and so the astonished Winchester shareholders are told that the company's going into retail, wow. which it duly does. And it's a, it's a catastrophe. They spend a fortune investing so that they can make cutlery, things that they're not used to making. And some of the lines make money, but most of them don't. And they go on this shopping retail shopping spree. And it, it's all a really a hideous disaster. And the company eventually goes bankrupt by 1931. And Thomas Gray Bennett doesn't live to see that day, but he rues the day that they ever got in bed with the bankers, as he saw it, hmm. who he was just extremely sad and died rather disillusioned, I think. So what are the remnants of Winchester today? So the name exists still. Um, the company, when it was sold in 1931, it was sold to Olin. Mm-hmm. And Olin still own the name today. You, there's Winchester Ammunition. Um, then the actual Winchester Repeating Rifle, that's also made via license. So, but not here um, in America, at least not, at, not currently, I don't believe. So the rifles are made all over the world, in Japan, in Turkey, for example. Hmm. So the name exists, and it's, it's used via license, licensed from a big con- conglomerate. And here in New Haven, where we're sitting now, of course, it's still within living memory. Those older folk can remember the days of the factory. Many people here worked in the Winchester factory. Um, and the post-war history of the company was not particularly happy one once it got to the 70s there were lots of labor issues um demand for guns dropped you know there were attempts to to make a go of the company when olin decided to sell it so you know lots of um lots of difficulties with it really but i guess for me as someone who um is a british citizen and shortly to become an american one i've lived here for 12 years the story of the rifle it seems to me to mirror american history at a particular period that period of the civil war of the expansion westward uh leading up to and encompassing the first world war that it's like um holding up a mirror to, to what was happening in america at that time through the lens of the family yeah, I mean, it seems very tied to that point in time. It's hard to sort of picture either of them outside of each other in a way. Yeah, no, that's right. And one of the things that I just found fascinating about it was the social history of it, really. So it's the women and the roles that they play, you know, the matriarch. So Oliver Winchester's wife, Jane, they endure terrible sadness. I mean, most of their children don't outlive them, mm-hmm. which you, f- you forget to think that that would happen to us now, I mean, I have three boys. The idea that I would outlive them is unthinkable, really, barring a, a terrible tragedy. But in those days, of course, so many children died before five. They were taken off by all kinds of um, ailments, and so many women died in childbirth. And um, it's, But one of the most interesting women in the book to me is, is Sarah Winchester. Right. So she of the Winchester Mystery House right, out west. Right. She's Oliver Winchester's daughter-in-law, and indeed, Oliver... And Jane outlived their son, William Wirt, who marries Sarah 
uh, well, she's called Sarah Pardee, and she's actually the daughter of a successful ca- carriage manufacturer here in New Haven, so she makes a very good marriage to Oliver Winchester's <laughs> son, William. And they have a baby girl soon after they get married, and their daughter dies, tragically, soon after she's born. And then William dies, Sarah's husband. He dies of tuberculosis, and mm. she's then phenomenally wealthy. Uh, you know, her father-in-law dies. Her husband dies a year later. She inherits all this money. When her mother-in-law dies, she inherits even more money. But I think New Haven to her just represents sadness. So she goes to make a new start out west with her many millions. (laughs) (laughs) And she builds this house, which you you can go and see today, the Winchester Mystery House, which this endless house. And the, the legend of the house is that Sarah was so haunted by that legacy that we were talking about earlier of of the Native Americans, of those who were slaughtered by the Winchester rifle out west, that she's told by the spirits, as long as she keeps building, the spirits will never come and get her and she'll be safe. So this is the legend. But I have to say, I found absolutely nothing in any of her writings to suggest (laughs) it was true. She seems like a highly intelligent woman. She is obsessed with death. She seems extremely sad. Um, But she spends a lot of her time thinking about her legacy. And in fact, here today in New Haven, we can see, well, we can't see, but the greatest legacy perhaps of all exists here because Sarah set up her will so that a lot of her money, a lot of the Winchester money, would go to what's now the Yale New Haven Chess Clinic. Uh, it was it's called the Winchester Chess Clinic, in fact, after Sarah Winchester and after William Wirt Winchester. But because her husband had died of tuberculosis and she wanted there to be research into this so that it would be a disease that was banished in future generations, she uh, left money to the clinic in her lifetime and then... She set up her will so that her nieces and nephews would receive an income from a trust fund during their lifetime. And when they died, the principal would revert to the Winchester Chess Clinic in New Hmm. Haven. So although tuberculosis now doesn't really exist in America, so it's been renamed the Winchester Chess Clinic, but pioneering work is done there into diseases of the chest. And that's all thanks to... Sarah Winchester, but you don't hear about that at the Winchester Mystery House. (laughs) You just hear about how she's dotty and holding seances with the ghosts of those killed by um, by the rifle. And, of course, I understand that. It's a great story, uh, and she know she she was extremely eccentric. There's no doubt about the fact she was eccentric, and she was also reclusive because mm-hmm. I think she didn't like the publicity at all. And uh, and she did keep building this house. I think it was something for her to do. She enjoyed it, and <laughs> right. she was an amateur architect. Uh, and in some way, it was a tribute, perhaps, to those who had died. But it's also interesting to think that her legacy is right here, right now, today, and thanks to her foresight her millions continue to fund the Winchester Chess Clinic to this day. So that gives me some pleasure to think that her careful planning (laughs) paid off. So as you're, you know, doing the research for this, um, was there anything that surprised you about your family? It's something you didn't know uh, that came up during the course? I think what was interesting, ultimately it's inconclusive, but I did find it completely fascinating Winchester Bennett and what his story was. I mean, from the letters that his parents um, uh, write to one another, you can see that they're, you know, they're just, they're worried about him. Why, why has he got this nervous anxiety? What, what exactly is going on? Um, And then the one thing that we do find out from the letters is that he checks in 
to Silver Hill in uh, in Connecticut, which is is still a well-known psychiatric hospital, but then was a psychiatric hospital for the treatment of addiction. So mm. what was he addicted to? Was it, I mean, he was in pain throughout his life. Was he addicted to, was it painkillers? Maybe 1950s, maybe the 30s and 40s were a bit early to be addicted to painkillers. Right. I don't know. Was he addicted to alcohol? Was that mm. a more obvious product that was used as pain relief in those days? But that was what really emerged, although there wasn't exactly an answer to it, was his nervous anxiety, his constant illness. He eventually died, Winchester, of Bright's disease, which is a disease of the kidneys. Hmm. Was that linked to alcohol abuse? Was it, I, I have all these questions in my mind. And the surviving cousins uh, and my aunts and uncles and my dad who, who remember Winchester just remember him as being a bit grumpy, a bit detached. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, not much seen in the afternoon. Again, is that another euphemism for going to sleep after lunch because you've had too much drink? I don't know. It's all very unclear. But I think also he was a wonderful family man who just loved all his relatives. And, and yet he's such a different character to Oliver Winchester and, and Thomas Gray Bennett, his father. And what was it like growing up with that pressure? Right. And did he always feel like he had dropped the ball during a crucial period in World War One, and his father had to come out of retirement. I don't know. I have more questions about it than answers, but I just found that's, that's so interesting, the, the family dynamic of it and what was really at the root of all his troubles. Well, thank you very much, Laura, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. The book is The Winchester, The Gun That Built an American Dynasty, and it's available now wherever books are sold. That does it for this episode of the Yale University podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. Talk to you next time.